0: I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. we we'll are continue our time through Matthew. We're coming close to the end. Um, it's been a good journey thus far, but we're drawing near. And today I'm going to be covering the chapters 18 and 19 of Matthew. And we've been looking at it, as most of you know, through the lens of a kingdom people. Who are we in light of what God has done? And not only like, who are we, but how do we live? What are the characteristics that we exhibit? What type of people have we been called to be? And so we're looking today at Matthew chapters 18 and 19. And before um, we jump into the text, I want to ask you a question, and it's this. Do you believe, do we believe collectively that we can live this life as Scripture describes and commands us to do? Think about that question for a moment. Do you genuinely believe that you can live as Scripture describes? Yeah, think of it for yourself. You don't have to say it out loud. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Yeah. Because if we don't, then I would say that we need to go back to the origins of what we understand who God is, His character, His nature, what He's done for us. But if we do, then the implications of that are absolutely radical. If we do believe, is God's word simply describing qualities and character traits which, should be, uh, which we should hope to experience, or does His word perhaps describe something greater than just <laughs> biblical idealism? Oftentimes, I think we look at it as that, well, this is something that would be really great but you know what, that's just probably not going to be true of my own life. Is it something that we can actually anchor ourselves to, anchor our hope to? If we do believe it, then my hope is this today, that we would be so stirred in faith to experience an increase in what we believe God can do as it pertains to the supremacy of who he is. And not just the supremacy of, of God in the God areas, There are certain things that we're happy to leave to God because they're his and his alone. But as to the everyday in and out experience of life, do we believe in the supremacy of God in sin, in the supremacy of God in victory over areas that we struggle in in our life, or just in the areas of faithfulness? Do we believe that God is ruling and reigning over all things and able to bring about his ultimate purpose through us and therefore his church. Because that is what we're talking about here today when we say, yes, we do believe. That every ounce of our life, every nook and every cranny, God is supreme over all and he will complete and bring about that which he has started in our life. And so it's to stir ourselves this morning in faith and expectation, again, not just in the God areas, but in the areas of our own personal lives. To see God be God, not for our sake, but his sake that he would bring glory to himself through his people, right? Yes? Can you guys agree with me on that this morning? Sometimes it feels difficult because it's almost as though the bar that Jesus set was purposefully unattainable, which it was, outside of him. And that's the key. Outside of Christ, the standard that is set within Scripture is unattainable outside of the person, the empowerment, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw this foreshadowing in Israel in the Old Testament, where he placed before them not a stumbling block, but a heavenly target, one that could only be reached through his ongoing interaction and intervention into their lives. And what a beautiful example that is of God's desire to engage with his people in care and in intimacy. See, the road is narrow. It was narrowed purposefully by God so that we might have the joy and the pleasure of experiencing God's ongoing intervention in our life the interaction of the king with his people because it's not made to just walk on our own, but it's made to walk where he goes before and he allows and helps us to go through. So his standard of righteousness is here, but he says you can attain it through grace and by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, yes? And so God doesn't lower the bar, we lower the bar to make accommodations for a sin in our lives that we're trying to manage. If Let's be honest, we do that in many ways. But I say the call today is for us in faith. Let's place the bar where it is. Let's see it where it has been placed by Jesus Christ. And let's hold out steadfastly and in faith, the hope that we can attain it by the grace of God. I believe that this is the key for us. As we look at this text today, I wanted to just begin with this encouragement because what we're going to see today, things that we're going to look at practically, we have to look at first and foremost through that lens. What does God say about it? What does scripture reveal is true? Where do we need to adjust ourselves in light of what is revealed? So I'm not going to read all of the text today just because there's just not enough time. It's two chapters. It's chapters 18 and 19. But what I do want to do is what I do want to do. What I would like to do. It's almost what I do want to do. What I'd like to do today is just give you... Um, kind of some broad steps through 18 and 19. And then we're going to drill down into three things that I believe are pertinent for us to take a hold of today. The first one is that it's a, it's a foundational starting point beyond what I just said that's revealed here. It's Jesus speaks in chapter 18, one by which I believe is a filter that we must hear the rest of his words in 18 and 19 through. And the second and third are matters of Christian living. They're those things which have a profound impact on both the integrity of the Christian community and the world in which it exists. And so what we have here in 18 and 19 is once again, Jesus is presenting or he's engaging his followers in a radical reorientation away from the world, away from the ways of the world and the systems of the world, and he's telling them this is what it means to live with inside the kingdom of God. You understood this Perhaps you once heard this, but today I say to you, this is what it means to live as a kingdom people. And it's, a, it's constant, and that's been the tenor of Jesus' ministry, of course, in the establishing of his kingdom here on earth. It's been a reorienting, a reeducating, a saying like, no, it was this, but now it's this thing here. And so we have that again before us in these two chapters. He's bringing the disciples away from conventional worldly wisdom and towards an eternal truth that's present and to be experienced now. And we must hear that today as well. We have to read these words and understand what is being said in light of what God has for us, not just through a past historical lens, because we are too called to follow like his disciples. We are followers of Jesus Christ, are we not? So too, we must expect that we experience that which they experienced. The things that he instructs him in, he instructs us in also, and we know that. So Jesus' instructions in these two chapters is on a very practical aspects of life, that when we understand them rightly and we apply them to our life, they are radically different than the ways of the world. Not reflecting the world, but deflecting the errors of the world and reflecting truth back upon it. And so there's two portions here that we can take these and, and, and really wrap them up into. The first is an inward-facing life. It's an inward-facing life, and this is found in chapters 18, verses 7 through 35. And here Jesus is speaking uh, on matters relating to the interpersonal relationships of those within the newly formed Christian community. So that's the first kind of overarching theme of Matthew 18, It's the matters that are inward facing within the Christian community. And the second is the outward facing life, that which is reflected outward to those outside of the faith community, but having influence on and speaking to significant and important cultural matters and cultural norms. And that's found in in chapter 19, verses 1 through 30. So we have kind of these two overarching perspectives, one pertaining to life inside the Christ community and one pertaining to to life within that reflects outward, if that makes sense. So within the first, in verses 7 through 14 of chapter 18, Jesus will speak on matters of caring for one another, dealing with sin within the community, confronting sin and restoring relationship, should sin occur between followers of Jesus Christ. And in verses 15 through 20, Jesus reveals the new standard for forgiveness within this Christian community. So all of these things are addressed here in Matthew chapter 18. And in the second, as pertaining to those which are external, Jesus addresses matters of the outward facing nature, thinking of of them as matters of stewardship. That's how we were to approach these. Matters of stewardship for the Christian community with an external influence. In verses 1 through 12, he's going to address divorce and remarriage. In verses 13 through 15, there's a brief statement on children. And in the remaining verses of chapter 19, 16 through 30, Jesus will speak on wealth, stewardship, and subsequent reward. Are you guys following me here? These are just broad broad strokes for the sake of summarizing since I'm not reading the whole thing. But before, as I said, there were three things. Before we address any of these, Jesus begins with a vitally important starting point found in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 18. And let's read those together, please. 1 through 5 of chapter 18. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What a question. We probably ask that sometimes of the Lord of ourself, don't we? Who's the greatest Lord, if we're honest? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5 Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, sorry, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow, that's quite an extreme statement, isn't it? The disciples here in this passage, they come to Jesus desiring to know among them who's the greatest. But what we hear Jesus say, as we've just heard, that it isn't the powerful, it's not the wealthy, it isn't the most charismatic, it's not the most well-spoken, it's not the most studious or even the most pious of them that find their fitting within his kingdom. Rather, he uses the analogy of a child. It's, it's, the, it's the mild It's the meek, it's the innocent that we often think of. But what Jesus is saying, it's the status of a child. It's the lowly position of a child. It's the humility that a child has within a social order that Jesus is presenting them, contrasting their question of greatness. It's the low who are of him, he says. And he likens those within the Christian community to that of this child. And Jesus, in the NIV, translates the the word humble that we read here in the ESV to the word low. And that word that's used here speaks of someone who has a modest opinion of himself. Someone who behaves in an unassuming manner devoid of all haughtiness. Not H-O-T-T-I-N-E-S-S. (laughs) H-A-U-G-H-T. Some of the younger people are like, wow, man, what? No haughtiness? No, none of that either. (laughs) He's speaking of someone who has a modest opinion of himself, who thinks rightly of his state in light of others. The same truth Paul will convey later in Philippians 2. We know this passage so well. But he says this, have this mind among yourselves, Which is yours in Christ Jesus? So he sets before us the pattern by which we are to follow. Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he uses this as, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Same word here that we read in Matthew 18, by becoming obedient to the point of death. So Paul, obviously understanding this important truth of how we as a people are to live our lives both in relationship with one another but also in within the world around, is taking a low opinion of ourselves, to taking a low perspective of ourself. Jesus is the pattern for those who would follow after him. And this is what Paul is also saying. Mark's account of Matthew chapter 18 is found in Mark 10. And he records something a little bit different where Jesus says this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to serve, but to serve. Sorry, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So today I would say, you guys, life within the Christian community requires a radical reversal of our natural assumptions and inclinations about the importance of leadership and status within the Christian community. We need to reorient our understanding of what it means to be part of this. One of the analogies we often try to use just when we're talking about our biblical model of church leadership is first and foremost, we use the word elder over pastor because pastor often has cultural presuppositions with it. But we use the diagram of a a tip of a spear. It's not the business hierarchy that we assume here. It's just the tip of the spear. So it's not someone that's above. In other words, I'm not above you. I'm no better than you. We just go out in front. We lead the way and we call others to follow along. And there's a dramatic difference between that and what the world has to say, is it not? This is what the world says. And we lord it over, and and this is coming back to the point of needing to raise the bar again because the church has also assumed some of this. And now we have pastor parking spots, right? We laugh, but they're everywhere. Just not here, why not? Come on, man. Someone's in my spot right now. Oh, that's Dean. You can, you can have that, bro. <laughs> the usurper. We joke, but my point, I, I mean, I'm serious, and you guys know this, is, but it's coming back to this. What does Scripture reveal about leadership? What does it reveal about the community of faith? What does it reveal about hierarchy? What does it speak to us about those things? It says it right here, Philippians 2, Mark 10, Matthew 18. You must take this lowly place. Be like this child. Take this low state. Have the same mind among yourselves where Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant. If any of you wants to be a part of this kingdom, you must first be the servant of all. You see what I'm saying here this morning? And this is important. This is where we begin today. This is the first point that I'm wanting to make because it changes the way that this functions and interacts and what we expect from each other. And I would say this first and foremost, it creates this. It creates a culture of dependence. What are children but dependent? What does the government call them? Dependents. That's what this creates within the Christian community. And so it's where we must begin. Paul would say to the Romans, outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. How far can I outdo you? You showed me honor here, I'm going to come back at you with this. How can we reciprocate this blessing upon each other. You guys get the point. Let's make it about this. How can we serve and thus preserve? This is the question that we can ask ourselves. How can we serve and thus preserve this God-honoring, life-giving faith community that he has given to us to steward? Not just to the eldership of Capital City Church, but he's given it to all of us to steward. And that's quite a reorientation from what is currently stated within Christian community often. Oftentimes, it's a place where those would come in, just receive what they're looking to receive, perhaps fulfill their sense of, of needing and wanting to be with the Christ community, and then they turn and they go, and it's like, well, it's yours to figure out leadership. It's yours to deal with. And yes, it is to a degree, but you get my point. When we have this perspective of what is my part, what is my ownership, where do I serve, Where do I belong? Where do I connect? How do I perpetuate this stewardship of what God has given to me? Let's make it about Jesus, you guys. Let's make it about shining Jesus and exalting Jesus and promoting and declaring him to one another and through one another. Because I see this, when he is said and shown to be the brightest, what happens? Matt diminishes. When it becomes more about, man, Kev, Like, I just want to encourage you in this today. You're drumming. It could have been maybe a little bit better, but, man, I just so appreciate the fact that you were up there worshiping God and leading us in this way. That's a little backhanded, wasn't it? Don't do it like that, but I just, like, I had to say it. Because you were up there making faces and stuff, so. We all saw it. Um, We're just agreeing with what you said. But my point is, is that when this happens of saying, man, you know what? I'm gonna just outdo you right now in honor. What happens is like this begins to get squelched. This just diminishes, this decreases. And and all of us, imagine if we all took this posture every week when we came here together. Man, I'm gonna outdo you right now and just say, Doug, I so appreciate the fact that you are a God-fearing, God-honoring man who loves truth and minds scripture to understand what is true and speaks what is true boldly, without any reservation. Imagine if we all did this week in and week out when we saw each other. What that does, both to those who come in and experience, wow, this is an interesting Christian community, but also too, what that just does in terms of encouragement and ownership for each other. You guys get the point. But it's so important because of what I'm about to say. And I wanna just say, there's two things that I've picked out, that I've selected from what Jesus has said of all of those things that we covered, dealing with sin, forgiveness, caring for one another, all those outward and inward-facing issues, we're not going to cover them all. I've just picked two. And I picked two because I believe that they are significant, even more so significant, in light of cultural liturgies that we're facing today. And so having this in mind... I want to say that the first that we'll look at today is the matter of forgiveness. That's the inward facing, and the other, the outward reflecting of God's nature is regarding divorce and remarriage. And I want to broaden it slightly to matters concerning of sexual ethics, because we can understand this, and we will look at it for what Jesus says in this passage, but we also need to broaden it a little bit to include significant matters within both Christendom and also the world today pertaining to sexual ethics. So let's look at first at forgiveness. Matthew 18, we're going to read these verses now together, or I'm going to read them and you're going to listen. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 23. This is Jesus speaking on forgiveness. Actually, no, let's back up, starting in verse 21. And then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my, bro- will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? That sounds like a question our kids probably ask us as parents once in a while. Do I have to really forgive him again? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought, sorry, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant Fell down and pleaded with him. This sounds familiar. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we have to remember just by way of of intro to this, is that a a parable is designed to make a single point. Usually it's one single point. And as we said um, uh, a number of weeks ago, that often that point is kind of hid just beneath the surface and requires the hearer to engage in a sort of mining with what is being said. But as it pertains to Peter's question, it's almost rather plain, is it not? The key to this is found in verse 30 in the first slave's unwillingness to extend even a fraction of the generosity to his fellow slave which he himself had just received. And the point of this is that there's obvious intentional echoes as Jesus, the king, as Jesus' immeasurable grace that's given to the many offenses which his disciples, of which we are, would commit one to another. That's the obvious implication here. To recall to mind the vast chasm that was crossed on our behalf in the immeasurable grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the depths of our sin and our depravity that we were pulled from, rescued from, brought out of and brought into a place of blessing, a place of right standing, a place of benefit as brothers and sisters in Christ receive from our Father God. See, forgiveness, it lies at the core of salvation. This is my point. So for us to understand this, both its, its internal application, but of course we know too it has a profound external one as well. But Jesus is speaking in this moment here in regards to brothers, in regards to those within the body of Christ. And as I said a moment ago, imagine those who would come into a faith community, whether it's on a Sunday or whether it's during the week as we gather, and experience this type of forgiveness. We talk about a culture that walks around with a chip on its shoulder, that's looking for justice and crying out for justice at what sake, at any cost, regardless of the life that it affects. But again, this radical reorientation of the Christian community being one that is no longer looking for justice between each other in the sense of you owe me, now pay me, like the servant to the servant, but one just to say, man, I forgive you the debt of which you owe As Christ has forgiven me, so I also forgive you. It's because God has first forgiven, as Peter says, in 1 Peter 3.18, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's how Peter describes it. That was Jesus being given for our behalf. And we know that it doesn't only pertain to, to the interpersonal relationships within our faith community, but as a whole, to live lives that are exemplary of forgiveness. But it has an importance for the sake of maintaining unity of heart and unity of mind, unity of focus and purpose, integrity of speech and action. Forgiveness is vital to all of those things. So don't hold a grudge or take an offense towards a fellow brother or sister. Don't allow bitterness to take root in your heart, thus creating division between one another. Don't be quick to take offense, but extend grace in assumptions. Don't stew in past offenses, but listen, let's be quick to reconcile. Let's be quick to listen. Let's be quick to pursue Let's be quick to forgive and let's be quick to restore you guys one another because the integrity of this relies upon it and the integrity of the gospel relies on the integrity of this. And to this extent, Jesus specifies not the three times over, which was customary within Jewish law. That's the three. And then Peter being Peter's, like, oh, I got this one. How about seven? I'm going to double it and add one. And Jesus is like, Peter, I was thinking this week, you know, we should do a study on the person of Peter. And just, you know, what he, I mean, the, the reflections of the Christian life through Peter. I mean, probably really profound. But here's Peter, you know, looking to be Peter and just wanting to please God. He's such a pleaser, isn't he? And he's like, yeah, how about seven? And Jesus says, no, no, it's, it's 70 plus seven. And, and there's lots of thought to the numbers, but, uh, you know, I won't get into the numerology. I would just say this. I think Jesus's point is that it's to the fullest and uttermost extent. That's the point. What measure of forgiveness do we extend to one another? It's the absolute, it's the ultimate. You guys, listen, I know we all believe this, but like before we just do this, yeah, 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 let's really think about, okay, what is that now? What, how do I need to adjust my expectations and my actions to be consistent again with what Scripture is saying as it pertains to forgiveness? It's just, I'm just, it's just a careful pause, just Pause. And let's think about how we actually really live this out and apply it to our lives, yeah? So the second, which is the outward facing that I said I want to focus on, was the matter of Jesus is addressing marriage and divorce. I'm just, for the sake of the conversation, I'll slightly broaden it. And I said to the matter of sexual ethics, within Christendom, again, we're talking about the Christian community, the integrity of the Christian community, And we're talking about what does Scripture reveal to be true? Not does, what does tradition say is right, but what does God say is true? And so I just want to say this before I begin. I want to acknowledge that I know there's many, perhaps even in this room, who have either experienced this to some degree or actually engaged in this. This is not a judgment on you, and I don't want you to hear this is condemnation, I want you to hear it as what God says is true. That's so important. I think you've heard my heart thus far in this as well. What does God reveal that is truth in Scripture according to his original design and intent for his creation? And we're going to look at that some more. But before we do, let's look at this portion of text. Matthew 19, I'm gonna read these verses one through 12 and we're gonna wrap up here probably in the next 10 minutes tops and then we'll have an opportunity to respond. Matthew 19, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, that's key, by asking Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? Underline that in your Bible. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Well, that statement says a lot right there. And we can draw back to that statement probably in a few areas of culture, yeah? But this isn't Matt, this is Jesus. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, here we go. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So no longer are the two, excuse me, so no, so they are. (laughs) So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's interesting when I was studying this, in Genesis, it's not attributed, the, the, the speaker is not attributed in Genesis, but Jesus attributes it to God, speaking it in that, in that moment. Verse seven, then said to him, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Underline that again. These are Jesus' words. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries, another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better. is it better to not marry? But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So I want to move through this carefully with measured words. Again, I want to be sensitive that this is not a judgment, but I want to elevate and raise Scripture to the place where it needs to hold in our hearts and minds, which is the standard for right living. And we must, as I said in the beginning, elevate our faith to believe that what God says is not only true, but it's attainable, you guys. When Jesus says this, it's attainable. It's not just wishful thinking. It can be experienced by his grace. We must reorient our thinking to align with truth that's revealed to us by scripture. And if perhaps you've not understood God's original intent, or maybe perhaps you've not understood the significance of your experience in light of God's order, I would say that today is the day that you can receive grace, that you can understand and receive that revelation for what God's intent is. And if need be, even perhaps repent, receive God's forgiveness, and recommit to living in a new way by the grace of God, one that is fueled by his grace and grace alone. And so I just want to say again that Jesus is giving us a radically different way of living. And so whether it's divorce whether it is heterosexuality, whether it is lust, pornography, adultery, or any other matter of sexual ethics, we must always seek the original intent and design that God began with in creation. For marriage, that original intent is found here in what Jesus points them to. See, for the Jews, for the Pharisees, They were taking Jesus from the assumption of Deuteronomy 24, where Moses lays this out for the people of Israel, that this is where it is lawful to divorce your wife. But what does Jesus do? He takes them all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis. And he says, this may be true, but this is what God originally intended. And the Jews... The Pharisees were questioning Jesus on the basis of Jewish law. And his point is, he's saying, listen, you guys, you've missed the point. The law that Moses gave was to manage, listen, was to manage the effect that sin already had upon God's original intent. Because he uses those words, for from the beginning it was not so. And so that's what Jesus is saying to them. They're saying, yeah, but but Moses made provision for it in the law. And he's saying the law, Moses made that provision because sin had already tainted God's original design. But hear me today, this is what God truly desired and what God truly intended. Therefore, realign your thinking, realign your belief and realign your actions with what God says is true. God's intent was that the fusing, which is this this one flesh, gives this idea in in regards to marriage. It's a fusing, it's a welding, it's a gluing that comes together. As to one flesh, it's a work of God and God's alone, which is why the coming together, the conjoining of two Christians in a marital covenant is not just this really wonderful act of tradition. Tradition. It's profoundly and divinely significant because it's God that is bringing two people together like this and think of like brazing. It's inseparable. And some would even go so far to say that they're just as in, Christ, as in, as in our regeneration of Christians where we're made new and there is an, an essence change, an ontological change is the word that we use there. Some would even say that this Two, perhaps, is what happens when a man and a woman come together, when God joins them. The essence of who they are changes. And so therefore, when he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate, it isn't that man cannot separate it, it's that man should not separate it. That is the point that is Jesus is saying. I want to just read this to you because um, I read it this week. And uh, I found it to be helpful, and, and you know I'm not going to take credit for words that are not mine. But let me read this to you. This is by um, a theologian named R.T. France. On this specific uh, matter, he says, Jesus is laying down a challenge to accepted norms and demanding, demanding complete rethinking of marriage on the basis not of human convenience, but on the purpose of God for his creation. Those who start from Deuteronomy 24, which is what the Pharisees were doing, will have as their basic presupposition, their basic initial assumption, that divorce is to be expected. Listen, you guys. My gosh, if this is not a norm, that divorce is to be expected. The question being only how is it to be regulated. Those who start from Genesis, which is what Jesus did where God began before sin's effect, we'll see any separation of what God has joined together as always evil. Wow, man, so hard, heavy words, but you guys, again, let's let's broaden it beyond just divorce, and now let's expand it to other matters of sexual ethics. Adultery, pornography, lust, And again, homosexuality and what does the Bible say about it? You guys, where have we capitulated within the church to the cries of culture for equality and justice? See, the church has long stood on the matter of homosexuality, but on matters of divorce and remarriage, not so much. My point is to say this again today. We need to understand what does Scripture say How do we adjust our expectation, our understanding, and our actions according to what is revealed within Scripture? And again, I would just say that this matter of sexual ethics within the church is so vitally important. Do we not see what God sees as sin, sin? Do we call it sin? When God calls it sin, do we call it sin? And then do we thereby call it evil? Because what is sin but an offense against God? And what are those offenses but evilness in their very origin? It's either sin or it's not. Boy, this, this is hard. But I feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to us today. See, a Christian marriage between a man and a woman is a God-mediated covenant that's intended to reflect so much more than just traditional orthodoxy, you guys. It's intended to reflect God's love towards his church. That's Paul's whole statement in Ephesians. God's covenant with his bride. Listen, hear what I'm saying. His love towards his church, his covenant towards his bride, his passion for her purity and her integrity. This is what the marriage covenant reflects. Through the conjoining into one flesh, the effectiveness of God's love is revealed. The surety of his faithfulness is shown. The jealousy of his devotion is made manifest. And the steadfastness of his patience and care and nurturing. You guys, for those of us who are married, I'm telling you, it's so much more than just man, I really love this person and I'm so attracted to her and I want to spend the rest of my life for her. No, it is, how does this reflect something that is truer and greater? In all of my words and in all of my actions, in all of my intents, it speaks of a greater truth. This isn't condemnation, you guys. This is encouragement, please. Hear what I'm saying today. Elevate your expectation. All of these things are revealed through a marriage covenant that should shine brightly from it so you can see how unfaithfulness to this truth exemplifies a lie. When we are not living consistently with what is true in Scripture in regards to marriage, we're perpetuating an untruth. We're saying this is what God thinks about such and such. Do you understand that? So by not living according to it, we're telling others who look at us that not only is this okay, but this is what God says, and this is not what God says. It isn't about traditionalism, you guys. It's about the gospel and the revelation of Jesus Christ to the world. That's what it's about. What is at stake is the integrity of the gospel witness. This is why the matter of homosexuality is so important, you guys. It's not because we're traditionalists and we're narrow-minded. It's because it speaks of something truer. It reflects who God is. There is no room to debate whether or not homosexuality is allowed. Whether same-sex attracted celibate Christians can live their entire life in that way. It isn't to say that people don't experience that, but it's to say that isn't true. It's perpetuating something that is false. All right, enough said. And again, expand it in matters of what we look at, men and women. What are you saying by continuing to give yourself to those things? You're saying that this is how God looks upon his church. You're saying that idolatry is allowed. You're saying that affection for something, for someone other than God in a manner that is not as God ordained it, is okay. So men, love your wives. Love them alone. Nurture them, love them, care for them lead them, attend to them, and elevate them as vessels of beauty and worth and value because that is how God has created them. And women, love your husbands. As Christ loved the church, let's husbands love your wives. But give yourself to them. Follow them, listen to them, love them, support them, respect them, honor them, speak well of them in front of others. This is how very practically we exemplify Christ to ourselves, to this community and those who are around us. So again, I would just say this, that the question we must ask ourselves in the matter of sexual (laughs) ethics is what is God's original design and what is God's original intent? Are we aligned in our living with what he has revealed? See, this, this, this is the radical nature of the kingdom of God. It isn't how to manage sin, but it's how to live in faith above it. I'm telling you, you guys, these lives that we live as Christians are so radically different. And I know I've used that word radically like 20 times today. But I'm just going to go with it because I'm landing right now. They are so different. They are divinely different. You guys, if you're in Christ today, you are absolutely unique from anyone out there that is not in Christ. Because you are secured and preserved and you are made, empowered by, sustained by, and given the ability to live in accordance with what he has said. There is nothing plain about that. There is nothing plain about you whatsoever. Let's live in faith and with expectation. And now as we, as, as, as we come to chapter 20 in Matthew... You see, Jesus' heart, man, his, his focus to the cross just becomes more and more and more. And while we're about to move into Advent, into a season of, of celebration, of looking back and looking forward is what, is what we celebrate over the next four weeks. Let's not lose focus of what Jesus has said to us thus far. He's moving towards the cross in Matthew. And we can come and we can celebrate in Advent because of the cross because what the cross has both established and secured for us in past and in future tense. And so I would just say to you all, let's gather friends, let's gather families, let's bring others into this celebration because that's what it is. This contemplation of the unique nature that was Jesus, the truly man, truly God, came to earth on our behalf to secure for us his people, that we might live this way. There's a lot in that. May the Lord give us the grace to do this, right? It requires grace, does it not? Would you please stand with me today? I know we're up against it, doggone it. I tried really hard to be done earlier, but since we're hanging, can I take five extra minutes and let's just um, respond to this. Do you have anything that you want to? Say right out the gate I'm going to ask the musicians to come back up and um, excuse me let's pray all right father we, uh, we want to we want to hear you even beyond what's already been said today father we, we, we want to hear you and hear you alone Lord we're asking today for grace to live this way to expect these things Lord faith to to believe in what you say is true is really being true, and so as experience it accordingly. Father, I pray today for, for any of us who have, can identify with any of these spectrums that have been stated. Lord, maybe we have elevated a thinking, the thinking of ourself, or perhaps, Lord, we struggle with unforgiveness in our life because we haven't fully grasped who you are for us, Lord, or, or perhaps, Lord, we have experienced a matter of sin in our life, Lord, or there's unrepentance, Lord, I pray, Lord, quicken our hearts to repent this morning.
1: Quicken our hearts
0: to repent, Lord, that we might receive grace and receive a washing away of the sin from our conscience, Lord God, in a, in a, re, in a restoration of our union with you as you so intended it, Lord.